0: Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Lige from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already, and do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show, Jonathan Reckford, Chief Executive Officer of Habitat for Humanity International. They work in more than 70 countries, have been around for decades, and are very big on addressing the issue of housing poverty, ensuring that really marginalized segments of society have a roof over their head. We're gonna be talking about the work they're doing, some of the interesting financing that goes on, some of the volunteering opportunities that happen, and a great deal more. So I'm really excited about today's conversation. And Jonathan, without further ado, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thanks so much, Alberto. great to be with you. Well, it's great to see you. You're out there in Atlanta, Georgia, in the East Coast, in the U.S. I'm here in the U.K. So we have a little bit of a time difference, but not too much. You're the chief executive officer of Habitat for Humanity International. It's an organization that I've known for a really long time and held in high esteem. But why don't we start by finding out a little bit about Habitat for Humanity International? What's it all about?
1: We are a housing organization. So our mission is to put God's love into action by bringing people together to build homes, communities, and hope. And we do that in a whole variety of ways. The, the quick backstory story is, it came out actually of a, a remarkable pastor in South Georgia who started an interracial farm in 1942. And you can imagine how welcome an interracial farm was in 1942. Uh, and the farm was bombed and boycotted and harassed. And in the 60s, he brought a group of people together to to think about and pray about what might be next. And out of that came another sort of extraordinarily prophetic letter. And he uh, he came up with the idea with this small group of a fund for humanity. And the problem they were looking at were uh, poverty issues, but the specific one were sharecropping farmers who were living in these terrible shacks uh, in poor conditions. And the idea was they would come around them, help them build a proper small home, give them a a no-profit, no-interest mortgage that they would then pay back and then keep making payments, and that the fund would then be sustainable. And they called it the Fund for Humanity. And a a young social entrepreneur who had come uh, to this farm to repair his marriage named Millard Fuller took this idea and went to Africa, then Zaire, now Congo, to test it out. And after three years of, of testing, the Fund for Humanity became Habitat for Humanity. And then uh, the world found out about it. It was a tiny organization. In 1984, uh, President, former President Jimmy Carter, uh, who lived just uh, less than 10 miles from uh, this farm, uh, was up in New York City for a UN meeting. And uh, and was he was a runner, and he ran by a Habitat project. And these uh, group was struggling to rehab a tenement building on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And he said... know we should go help these students and the press picked that up the millard fuller picked that up uh president carter came back with a busload of of people from georgia and spent a week sleeping in a church basement and working on rehabbing this tenement building excellent and no one had ever seen you know a former president of the united states (laughs) this way and that kind of blew up and that was the beginning where the world found out about habitat but uh very quickly the the basic idea was self-help housing so we we work with families uh, who can't get a conventional bank mortgage or loan. Uh, they take out a loan and uh, from Habitat or if we can get a third-party financer to give them an affordable loan. And then they put in what we call sweat equity in lieu of a down payment. They get training in home maintenance and financial management. And then they pay back that affordable loan and that recycles in their community. So that was the genesis. And that went really wide. Uh, so we serve in 71 countries now. Uh, Habitat is uh, a little over $2 billion in revenue. We, in many ways, have evolved. And the big evolution, and, and I'll stop and hopefully open up the conversation a little bit, was moving. I joined back in 2005, and our primary question was how many houses could we build around the world, which was a very good question. The question we then migrated to was what would it take to meaningfully reduce the housing deficit in all the geographies we serve? which is a much more audacious question and really forced a move from primarily a community development and construction uh, mindset to an ecosystem mindset of how do we impact the ecosystem in such a way that families could improve their own housing. And that led us into property rights and advocacy and thinking about how do we help especially women and marginalized groups get the right to stay on their land. It uh, launched us into becoming a global leader in housing microfinance and getting the microfinance industry to begin doing home lending or home improvement lending. And then down the value chain into building materials and skilled labor and thinking about uh, making the ecosystem work so that at scale families could begin to improve their own housing. And that has launched us from helping thousands to helping millions of families per year
0: um but we certainly have a long way to go fascinating stuff and like i mentioned at the start of the show i've known you guys for forever since you know and uh and jimmy carter as you point out i think he was a really great voice for habitat for humanity and i to me that the two are sort of not synonymous but you know quite close to that um if i think about habitat for humanity without doubt i think jimmy carter as well and vice versa i should
1: i think the world does too and and president carter who is now finally retired at 98 um but for uh until COVID, for you know 36 straight years uh was came out and spent a week building somewhere in the world with habitat which was extraordinary and the other 51 weeks a year he would be out doing amazing things with the carter center but he's really a role model for me in terms of someone who has lived a, a life of extraordinary Faith and integrity, and, and really servanthood. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. And so, tell me about um, I guess the most important areas, your priorities, your initiatives. There's so, I mean, I don't. We're not going to be able to cover it all, but tell me what's keeping you up at night with excitement about the good you're doing.
1: Well, I will. Actually, I had, had just got back late last night from Washington D.C., where we were. Um, we do. We call Habitat on the Hill. This is the U.S. piece. So the the great majority of our work is global uh, in the global south, uh, but but unusually in the United States, we have 1,100 local habitat organizations all across the country. So we have this very wide footprint doing local building, and we had 400 meetings uh, with members of Congress yesterday. So we were uh, we tried to and I'm starting with the bad news. The bad news is globally we have a housing crisis. Um, housing affordability has has become shockingly out of reach for a huge swath of society. And COVID took an an existing set of trends and made it far worse. So if we think about the global kind of megatrends, climate and uh, migration and urban mass urbanization, um, those are are enormous forces, both of which have huge ties to housing, because cities don't have the infrastructure housing for their current populations, and certainly not for their anticipated. And then climate is driving even more migration. And then on top of that, obviously the war and COVID, and you put that combination together, everyone suddenly wanted more real estate, was more focused on having safe places to shelter in place. Uh, more people were migrating because they could do remote work at the elite level, or they were being forced to move to find, to be able to sustain themselves uh, in so many places. And then with, uh, you know, at no at zero or negative interest rates, Capital was flowing into real estate in search of yield in ways that drove apart the historical connection between incomes and rents. And so suddenly uh, we saw real estate values skyrocket um, way uh, out of line with the ability for families to afford those rents. So what we've seen is the families being cost burdened uh, higher than ever. And as I frequently say, and I'll, I'll circle back to, you know, if we want to solve climate issues, you really have to deal with the built environment and where people live. And so it's not only do they have adequate housing that is energy efficient uh, and sustainable, but where that housing is turns out to be a huge piece of it if we want to create sustainable cities, both from an equity lens and from a climate lens. So uh, those are areas of deep passion on the the part I'm excited about is if we can bring good out of bad, um, there is visibility and resonance to an issue that we have always seen as a you know, as a first order. If you think about hierarchy of needs, after food and water, shelter is, is really as, as basic as it gets. And yet I think most decision makers have never experienced the lack of adequate shelter or housing, and therefore less of a visceral issue. Now as cities have gotten so expensive and middle-class families, children are struggling to afford housing, I think the political uh, view of housing is is rising, but for us, the bulk of our work is really helping extremely low-income families upgrade or improve their housing to make it safer, more resilient, healthier, and more affordable for them. And Great. so those are the, the
0: areas I'm uh, most excited about. Great. Um, I know you do have a presence in the UK, although most of your work is not in the UK, but I should, just for context, and you probably know this if you're reading the ft or any of the newspapers here but um it's very difficult to get on the on the property ladder in in the uk especially in london unless your parents are coming in with a deposit or but just the the disparity uh and um it's just an impossibility for many many people you know where previous generations wouldn't have had this struggle but just for context here in the uk it's it's not an the topic we're talking about today it's not an alien topic it's something that's very much front and center and and visible and uh, and palpable tell us a little bit so the countries where you're working you, you re- refer to the global south what does it actually look like in practice what happens is it a family who says look we want to get on the property ladder we want to get a we, we just don't have the means and how do they connect with you how would they actually go about securing their dream? How, how does this work?
1: So in the uh, sort of traditional habitat model, we would be uh, deeply embedded in the community and basically three criteria so that the, the families and unfortunately the, the waiting lists are staggering, which is the heartbreaking part, why we need to do so much more. But families would be have to be willing to partner. And this would be more the global north view if you are Australia, New Zealand, Korea, know the united states canada um, some places so willing to partner willing to put in that sweat equity and uh and go through the training and then demonstrate the ability to pay back the affordable mortgage and so we are in a way a you know the nicest sub subprime lender you'll ever meet Uh, but as a result we have incredibly low foreclosure rates because it's not the families can't make the payments what they can't do is find properties they can actually afford so we sell them a very energy efficient small simple home uh, and that they have learned how to maintain and take care of. And so we have found that's been extraordinarily successful. And, and in many ways, you and I before the podcast starting, we're talking about why housing, mm. and housing is certainly not the other need, uh, the only need, but what we've seen in many ways is it's a prerequisite for so many other things. So what we found is if children don't have safe, adequate housing. They don't stay healthy then they don't do well in school and there's this whole cycle uh, that comes so so proper housing adequate housing in many ways is that launching pad and stability turns out to be a huge piece as well so uh, especially low-income children that move frequently or don't have stable housing that has a huge negative impact on their educational outcome but let me give you an example much more you know exotic and nepal is a country i have a huge heart for um, lots of challenges very very low incomes and in many ways, the, the, the you don't have an ecosystem to create housing that is affordable. And so we've really tried to work on multiple levels. And I'll unpack that just a very quick example. So we work with some very vulnerable groups that have been uh, historically disadvantaged. And we worked with local government, national government to get them the right to stay on their land. Uh, and because if you think about it, if you don't know that you can stay, it's not rational to invest in upgrading. So the first step was securing at least secure tenure the sort of the the government's view that you belong there even if it's not a legal title at least sort of certification because then you can start thinking about permanency and investment second step is we work with a whole array of, of uh, microfinance partners and community local community organizations and they actually do the lending we do some wholesale lending to them to give them capital and then they're doing retail lending small loans. These aren't whole mortgages typically, but would be small loans that would help the families uh, incrementally build their houses, which is how the very low-income families of the world build. So it might start with getting a, a proper foundation or cement floor, it uh, proper roof, getting access to water, sanitation, expanding to have uh, enough living space per person. We're then partnering with uh, in Nepal with um, the Hilti Foundation. This is a large industrial tool company, and there's a their foundation has been really interested in sustainable building and it has been a global partner for us. And we're working on a, on a special kind of treated bamboo that's very low cost, locally grown, properly treated, extremely durable. And we're using a, a bamboo with cement plaster that creates a, an, a very resilient uh, and earthquake uh, resilient home. And then the families are taking out loans uh, to pay those back. So thinking about Kind of the whole value chain can we get better quality building materials help them with design and support uh, make sure that there's a skilled labor that is trained uh, to build well and then giving the families the right to stay and access to financing and in doing that you can that can start hopefully to scale in a way that that would keep working even if habitat exited and got out of the picture which would what that would be what real success would look like for us
0: yeah the uh the issue of titles and property ownership and in many countries it's such a challenge even just ascertaining the ownership of a plot of land and many people who've been there for ages don't have access to it and the record it's just that in itself i remember from from previous work i've done it can be such a challenge to overcome when you're trying to do a local intervention right it's a huge issue, and very often women in marginalized groups are the ones who have
1: the least protection. And so uh, one of my favorite examples was a number of years back, actually with support from Diffid, We created a small academy in Bolivia where women didn't have the right to own property. And if you think about that, you know, you think about divorce, death, inheritance, abuse and all the implications or just the inability to have an asset. And I think increasingly our world is becoming divided between people with assets and people without assets. So we trained this group of uh, formidable Bolivian women and a few men, and I had the privilege of meeting with them. And they not only uh, successfully got the federal government to give them the legal right to their properties, they got the law changed at the federal level so that if a man was married and wanted to register either his home or his land, it had to be joint titled. Now, we've got to then make sure that the law gets applied, followed through and done. But, but we would consider that an advocacy win of changing the enabling environment because then you have at least changed the, the sort of foundational infrastructure. And uh, or in a similar way in Colombia, where the government is, you know, was invested with us and wanting to make it easier. There were 64 steps to get a title and expensive and exhausting. So there the focus was, could we streamline that process and make it much less expensive and simpler for families who've been living in informal settlements for, in this case, decades to get that formal right to stay? Absolutely.
0: And it's not just changing the law. It's changing the attitudes, making sure people are aware of the law, making sure that it's enforced accordingly. There's so many different steps, right?
1: Exactly. So we would say that the law is the first step, but certainly not the the end step, because then it's coming alongside and, and uh, supporting the families to get through that process and make sure that it actually yeah
0: And uh, the support, uh, I think, is quite important, right? Because unfortunately, many of the groups that you're referring to, marginalized, illiter- illiteracy is an issue, an inability to understand. Not everybody can sit down and there, fill out all the forms and dot all the I's and cross all the T's the way you might. Not everybody has that uh, education in, the, in their back pocket
1: absolutely you know it's it's a great insight and it's one of the things we learned as we were trying to grow out our lending work our wholesale lending we actually started out no microfinance banks would do housing and we knew there was a demand for it so we started lending our own capital to microfinance banks and training them to do lending and then we actually raised a wholesale fund called microbuild that just won the silver medal from the united nations for most effective development innovation and we um that hundred million dollars uh, has now we've loaned out 170 million as the funds have, have evolved. It's going to return. It's going to pay back its uh, its bondholders as well as a, a modest return to its equity holders. It directly has helped a million people get improved homes, but indirectly has has leveraged uh, now billions of dollars of capital as we started to demonstrate that this that there is actually a market. The thing we learned that has been harder to crack is the families when they borrow the money then need some help on how to get a good improvement but they're very low income so they don't want to pay for that help and so it's you can scale the lending faster than you can scale that local retail technical assistance so we've been trying to give institutional technical assistance at the lender side and then we're trying to find different ways we've done lots of experiments of how do we educate the families to then get value for money with the loans they have borrowed we're actually experimenting in kenya and philippines with a home improvement tv show so not to do direct training but to uh but to kind of uh, show what it looks like for families to go through the process and
0: improve their own homes excellent um, i used to be a big fan of this uh, this old house or this old home with bob Villain, yeah if you remember it's, it's that. a great show i'm dating myself here a little bit but um but it's interesting so if i understand you correctly here on the financials actually uh there's good these are good investments for ethical investors as well. People who are interested in having a financial return and doing good and, and unifying both of those.
1: I think there is. You know, there's a great debate in the impact investing space. And, and I'm, I'm actually, I, I think we tend to say it's either or. I think we need all of the above. So I think there is a role for market return, you know, impact investing. Um, that's not the space we're in. We're a little further out on the bleeding edge. And so- Concessionary. What we're we're looking for is concessionary capital. So I, I think of us as almost leveraged philanthropy. We raise a lot of philanthropy. We run a chain of a thousand retail stores, thrift stores that generate the families pay back these loans and we recycle the, the loan proceeds, but we, then we use philanthropy so we can accelerate and grow. And the reality is uh, there's no place in the world where you can build housing for very low income families without some subsidy in either land or in financing. So we're trying to to uh, live in that. But it's an interesting debate because I, I know I've got friends who I deeply admire who would say there's no trade off. You can get full market returns and do good. I, I think the temptation when you go for that is to go up market. So you tend to move away from the riskiest clients and away from helping the maybe where the area is most, the desperate area of need. So I think we need. You know, there's always going to be a need for humanitarian aid for families who have no income, uh, and who've been impacted by war, impacted by. Uh, by climate, by other tragedy. I think there's a a in-between spot for concessionary capital that kind of leverages philanthropy. And then I do think there are places where you can make full market returns. But I feel like for the NGO and nonprofit world, we should be a little further out on the risk edge to demonstrate what's possible and sort of push the market, but but with a pro-poor.
0: Yeah. I mean, that could be a, a whole series of different episodes the uh to me uh, there is a difference between an esg integrated investment and an impact investment and actually the impact investment side of it to me uh, almost always should have some sort of concessionary angle to it the risk adjusted returns yes esg integrated and so forth but the impact the way i not to say grew up with it but the way it's been ingrained in me over the years it's it's a little bit more than just thinking good you you got to be really clear and meticulous about what link are you driving you know what are you, what is your investment going to actually do is it an increase in literacy rate is it a decrease in mortality by x percent and just being quite clear and clinical about that and having arguably uh, a concessionary
1: uh, i i totally agree you know i'm i'm a, both a giant fan and historically have been a critic of my own sector because <laughs> you know when i went to business school a million years ago There was not a mainstream idea that nonprofit or NGOs should be professionally run. There was sort of this, you know, dividing line. And I went to Stanford because at that point in the U.S., Stanford and Yale were the only business schools that really were trying to think intentionally about uh, bringing professional management into the social sector. Mm. And now I think that's a completely mainstream view. And so in many ways, I think the social sector should keep professionalizing, but it is different than the private sector and, and, and plays different roles. And I think you're right, that clarity around our role and the clarity around, um, often the, the metrics are fuzzy and it, that makes greenwashing and sort of everyone claiming good in ways that
0: probably uh, distort. Uh, I think ability. more people are claiming good than are actually doing good. Uh, without pointing any an accusatory finger in any specific direction. You used a term a little bit earlier on that I'm curious about. You said sweat equity. You used that more than once. Tell me a little bit about sweat equity.
1: So sweat equity, when I talked about the the origins, the idea was, and, and this is very real in Europe, uh, U.S., any of the high income, but actually all around the world, this is true. It's very hard for a family living paycheck to paycheck on subsistence to save the money for a down payment to be able to purchase property. So the concept of sweat equity was recognizing that almost impossible situation. And the idea was families in lieu of a cash down payment would literally help build their home and their neighbor's home. So that's where the term sweat equity came from. And the other part that came with that was the relationship. And I think um, in that prophetic letter I mentioned from this Clarence Jordan, who I think is one of the sort of unknown greats, uh, uh, in a way, thinkers of our sector, he had a quote that I just loved. And he said, this was in the 60s, way before social entrepreneurship, way before many of the things we're talking about. And he said, what the poor need is not charity, but capital, not caseworkers, but co-workers. And what the rich need is a wise, honorable, and just way of divesting themselves of their overabundance. And he had a vision that everyone had something to give and everyone had something to gain by working together. And that, that sense of partnership really was the deep ethos of Habitat. So on that build site, everyone's together. It doesn't matter that incomes are different, social status are different. And I think out of that, there's a feeling of community that's quite palpable and striking. And that's what got me involved. I was working for the Walt Disney Company and we sponsored a couple of Habitat homes. And you know, I, I joke, Disney would spend a fortune on what I would call artificial team building. But for me to bring my team out and spend a day alongside a family putting siding on a home, Um, was such a powerful team experience, but also such a meaningful experience that a number of us just kept on volunteering. And it's unusual. Habitat has millions and millions of people who volunteered with us. And that's not really a construction strategy, but it's critical as a social change strategy. Because my experience is when someone who maybe has never even been to another part of their own city, uh, either crosses their city or goes on one of our global village trips to build in Cambodia or Malawi or in uh, Paraguay, you see the world in a different way and we immerse them in the community for a week or a couple of weeks. And we're very intentional. It's not a smart way to build homes. This is all about building relationship. And I think, and that there's a responsibility out of that relationship to then go and do something good in our increasingly polarized world. Actually, I love that uh, that community building aspect of our work. And and we're doing a, a big effort in the United States around intentional bridge building that actually using service, as an antidote to polarization, but that's a, that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah,
0: no, but that, I think that's a great uh, angle as well for, for yet even more episodes <laughs> because philanthropy can certainly be a unifying force. I think in a world where so many divisive tensions, uh, even internally within families, and it's philanthropy seems to be that one thing that brings people together uh you referenced the walt disney company your time there you referenced a little bit about stanford and i did read your bio you have a fascinating bio you were at uh, stanford mba goldman sachs marriott uh disney give us a little bit of insight into your career trajectory your personal narrative how you ended up where you are today well i often say i think god
1: has a sense of humor because my career made no sense to me and yet when i look back all those pieces have turned out to be so valuable in preparing for uh, me for where I landed. Um, I'll try to do the short version. I had an amazing role model. So two extraordinary women in my life, my godmother and my grandmother were both kind of uh, glass ceiling breaking uh, pioneers. And my grandmother was uh, one of the early women in the US Congress. And she um, was deeply passionate about civil rights and justice issues. And and almost every time I saw her as a kid, she would quote her favorite verse in the Bible, Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And then she would ask me what I was going to do to be useful. So her view of the good life is we're supposed to be useful. And uh, so I was going to go to law school and go into politics to be like her. And then suddenly realized I had no interest in being a lawyer. I just thought that's what you did. So I had to come up with another plan. Um Talked my way into a job at Goldman Sachs and then suffered mightily for the hubris of uh, telling them I would learn finance faster than they could teach other people how to communicate.
0: And, uh,
1: <laughs> I was not fully accurate as it turned out, but um, learned a lot, including that I probably wasn't cut out to be an investment banker. I really wanted to regain perspective, had a deeply transformational year. I, I moved to Asia with a grant from the Henry Luce Foundation and spent a year uh, doing marketing work for the Seoul Olympics uh, back when Korea was just emerging. And then a uh, longer story I won't tell, I ended up coaching the Korean rowing team uh, in preparation for the 88 games, uh, which is a little bit like the Jamaican bobsled team. They only qualified because they were the host country. But But I lived immersed in the Korean training camp with all the coaches and athletes for a year and totally gave me a new view of the world and life. And that was a deep year for my faith, went back to business school with the idea I would learn in the private sector and then take those skills to the nonprofit world. And then that was more meandering. So I, I spent time, at Marriott Disney, Circuit City was starting CarMax, which I thought was fascinating. So I was head of strategy there and we you know, we helped uh, take CarMax public. And then I was president of a now dead retail chain. So my, my business credibility is gone for your listeners. <laughs> Back when people actually went to the mall and bought music on plastic discs, uh, this was a large chain and Best Buy bought that. And I thought, you know, I've stayed longer than I ever planned in the private sector and so stayed for a year to help with the transition. And then exited. And that was the next big inflection point. And I thought, uh, I went off to India, God broke my heart around uh, global poverty issues. And I thought, I really want to do this. And then it was much harder than I thought to make the transition. And while my business career had been growing uh, new businesses uh, within companies, my volunteer work had been helping churches grow and coaching pastors. And that led very unexpectedly to being asked to Help lead my my very large local church, um, which everyone I trusted for career advice said not to do, uh, but felt was the right. And I look back and, and actually that waiting time and then the church time turned out to be just the right complement to my corporate time to be ready when I wasn't looking. And in 2005, I got a call uh, about Habitat for Humanity, which kind of combined all the things I was passionate about and interested in. And so um, did not think they would choose me, but but as you can tell, I could hardly keep a job, and now uh, this has been this is year eighteen. But I wow. have absolutely loved uh, the
0: work, and I still feel deeply com- convicted about this mission. Wonderful, wonderful, and it, and it is as you point out. Oftentimes, when you're not looking, that's exactly when when it happens, isn't it? You know, I think one of my my godmother's advice was, you know, it, which
1: it was hard to understand when I was young, but I so resonate with it now. Which is, if you you know, if you focus on acquiring power you will inevitably get derailed or or go off course. But if you focus on achieving a mission, you'll attract the power you need to accomplish the the mission.
0: Tell me, in terms of uh, folks who are listening to this, whether they're in the US or the UK or Paraguay, wherever they might be, how can people get involved, uh, find out if they wanna help, if they have the inclination or the resources, where where can we direct them to and what can they um how can they get better versed in what you're doing
1: thank you so much so if you go to habitat.org that is the simplest uh, way and you can learn there are array of ways to to get involved covid stopped all of our international volunteering but that finally is gonna just is ramping back up so those opportunities are going to come back again um, but we need, you know, uh, we need volunteers in an array of ways, depending on where you live and what your contact is. So skilled volunteers are incredibly valuable, as well as uh, as well as we need people's muscles on the build site. But uh, and certainly we always need more money and especially we need voices. So, you know, one of the things that is so important in almost every city now are people of affluence and influence who are willing to use their voice and say, yes, in my backyard. Yes, I will support mixed income, mixed use. I'll support. Uh, low-income housing being built in our city, uh, to take that bigger vision, because it's it's remarkable. Once uh, people own a home, they tend to get very defensive about anyone else being able to uh, live near them. And we know, this is probably my headline in some ways, when we think about successful cities, they're mixed income, mixed use. And that's there's, that's the best model for climate sustainability, because we want ideally 15 or 20 minute cities, everybody with with easy access to where they work and where they live. That's better for their quality of life, better for the environment, uh, better for the community. We also know that social mobility and community results are better in mixed income communities, that low income children who grow up in mixed income communities still have relatively good social mobility in many contexts, but low income children growing up in concentrated poverty have almost no social mobility. And I think that growing divide in a way, uh, it's very hard to solve without um, very intentionally thinking about how we design that. I mean, London is a great example. Actually, London, did a really good job of creating mixed income. And then that slowly has been undone over time. And then we didn't keep building enough housing. So now London, which had pretty good mixed income and social housing, has a huge deficit and prices have just exploded. Now, you know better than
0: I. I do know. I do know. Is there a key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? Well, it's you'd be
1: shocked since I work in a housing organization that, um, that I think the takeaway I want people to think about is one um, you may take housing for granted, but if we really want to have sustainability, we've got to have energy efficient, sustainable, simple housing in the right places. If we want social equity, We've got to think about housing and how that fits into it. And if we want to have economic growth uh, for, uh, for the business community, you can't keep a trying or growing your business if, you, if your workers don't have a place to live. So I think both on the moral side and the practical side, we've got to really think about how housing fits
0: into the kind of communities we are trying to create. Excellent. Jonathan, thank you so very much for joining me and joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. It's been insightful, enlightening, thoroughly enjoyable. And I hope people listening uh, take action and learn more and get in touch with you. So thank you so, so very much. It's a pleasure, brother. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Perfect, and that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Jonathan Reckford, Chief Executive Officer of Habitat for Humanity International. For information about this conversation and more than 200 other case studies and interviews, please visit our website at Ligi.org. That's L I D J I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. It helps others to find the show. And thank you so very much for joining us. I very much uh, enjoy producing these shows week in and week out. I learn so much every week. I'm privileged and hopefully so do you. And you're a little bit enthused, better informed and are able to take some positive action to improve the world around you. So thanks for that. And I will catch you on Monday.